Good morning again, and um, I'm, I'm really excited this morning just to share a little bit uh, from God's Word. And I want to begin this morning with a story. Uh, in, my, uh, in my late teens and in my early 20s, um, I, many of you know this, I grew up out here, I grew up in the valley, and I was living in the valley at that time with my grandmother, um, actually my Jewish grandmother, if you don't know that I, my, I'm heritage, my heritage is Jewish, um, and so I was living with my Jewish grandmother, so this is, um, uh, this is um, gosh, this is the early 90s, probably early to mid 90s around this time, I was living uh, in the valley with my grandmother. Um, um, and it was during that season of my life that I became very close to my uncle. It's my dad's youngest brother. His name's Brian. Um, uh, my parents um, had recently left L.A. for Riverside County, the Inland Empire. Don't hold it against them. And um, they, were, they were living there and actually doing ministry there. And so I stayed out here, and I was kind of doing community college, and I was working, and I was kind of just kind of floating through life, really, to be honest with you. Uh, I wasn't doing anything bad. Uh, but I just didn't really have any like kind of like purpose at that point. I was just kind of taking as many classes as I, as I wanted at, at Glendale Community College, probably like one or two a semester. And I was working at a bank. Uh, but I became really close to my uncle during that time. Um, we would go to the gym together a couple times a week. I know it doesn't look like it now, but we would go to the gym together. Uh, remember, this was the 90s, all right? And um, we would uh, hang out afterwards. Usually in the days that we'd go to the gym, he'd invite me over, and my aunt would cook dinner, and we'd hang out. I had... Uh, some cousins, but they were real small at the time, and, um, but we'd hang out, uh, and then often, I had, my, my first car was a 1970 Chevy Camaro, I loved that car, beautiful, yeah, it was great, yeah, except it wasn't automatic, that was the only bad thing about it, yeah, but I bought it for $800, I mean, you can't, you can't beat that, and it had 87,000 original miles on it, it was a beautiful car, I, I was dumb though and young, and I restored it, so it looked beautiful, but I never touched the engine, I should have spent that money on the engine, but anyway, it was a beautiful car, um, and it was a beautiful season of my life, but as old cars do, they kind of break down, and my uncle had all the tools, and so I'd just hang out at his house, and I'd work on the car with him, and he'd help me, and, and it was great, so my uncle and I really kind of bonded over uh, that season, uh, and I, it was springtime, and I was trying to remember if it was 94 or 95, I can't quite re remember, but it was somewhere in there um, that my uncle and his family went up to Northern California to hang out with my, my aunt, his sister, and her family, and they were some extended family. They went on this big vacation together. And while up there on vacation, he began to experience some weird headaches and also some like loss of some of his peripheral vision. And he was like really freaking out. He's a young man at, the, at this time. He's in his uh, probably late 30s. And um, he was kind of freaked out. So he went to the ER up there and they ran some tests and they really couldn't figure out what was going on. So they basically said, hey, when you get back to L.A., make an appointment to see your doctor or a specialist and try to figure this out and do some more extensive testing. So he did that. He came back and he went uh, to the doctor and he eventually went to, uh, I think they did a, a full-on MRI of his brain and everything to see what was going on there. And um, I can clearly remember this moment to where my grandmother telling me that my uncle had an extremely rapid rapidly growing brain tumor um, that started when they found it the size of a marble. About a month later, when they went to go operate and pull it out, it was the size of a grapefruit. And it was sitting behind his optic nerve there, so it was putting pressure on his eye, and that's why he started to feel the loss of, of his vision. And I, and I was just devastated, because during the season, my uncle and I had become super close. He was really like, a, like almost like a second father to me during the season of my life. And I remember that I called my dad to tell him that his brother had this tumor. And I was sobbing, and I was weeping on the phone. Um, and I can remember this moment so vividly and so clearly. And, and, it, and it reminds me that there are moments in our lives like this 
Uh, and let me just stop and say, because I didn't write this minutes, my uncle survived. He's still alive today. I kind of left like a cliffhanger. I'm like, I was like, I didn't really give the conclusion of the story. Um, really miraculously, um, this type of, of tumor that he had is very rare. It's usually people that have Im immune deficiency syndromes or people that maybe suffer with AIDS that get this because their body normally can resist it before it kind of gets there. But um, they were able to pull it all out. Like this type of tumor typically like is like, splattered, if you will, in, in, the, in the brain when they find it. But when they went in to grab it from him, it was like encapsulated. And so the doctors were able to kind of go in and just pull it out in one piece. And he went through chemotherapy and he went through radiation. Um, and it is fine to this day. Uh, he's still alive. He's, got, he's a grandfather now. Um, it's, it's like totally a miracle. And he's, he's not a believer, but like so many people from around really the country were praying for him during this season. But I can remember distinctly that in moments like these, it's, it's kind of one of those moments in your life where you begin to ask questions of God, right? Like we all have them. We may not have had a family member uh, threatened with a life-threatening disease, a tumor, a cancer, or something like that. But we ask questions like, why now? Or why, like in this case, my uncle? Uh, and God, where are you in, the moment, uh, in a moment like this? And although it may not be like this same type of bad news for you, I'm sure there have been moments in your life, and if you haven't faced a moment like this, I don't mean to be like, I'm not prophetic or anything like that, but the reality is if you live life long enough, you will face a moment like this um, where whether it's a loss of a family member, a loss of a long-term relationship, um, it could be uh, the sense of like you're working in your career and it's going nowhere after all these efforts and you're, you're in a season of maybe financial or emotional difficulty. Uh, but whatever the situation we, might be, we all have these moments where we feel like God is not there or we begin to question where is God in these moments? Um, and honestly, for some of us, if we're, if we're truly honest with ourselves, uh, and maybe even the Lord, um, some of us are, are maybe one major life change away from not only questioning God, but even giving up on our faith. And my prayer for all of us today um, is that the word that we read this morning would encourage you and me and to draw all of us to this place of strength endurance and patience, not only in seasons that are challenging like that, but really in every moment of our lives. Um, because I believe that there's this deep well within heaven of God's strength, endurance, and patience that he has for us. Um, and we will find, and let's read, actually, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, we're going to turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read uh, about 10 verses this morning that I believe can really give a great foundation for where we draw this strength endurance and patience from. So Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 20. This morning, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. So if you have an app, you can kind of pick that one, N-R-S-V. Uh, but if not, just kind of listen in this morning. It'll probably be very close to your uh, translation as well. Uh, verse 11 reads, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his, of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word, and I just pray uh, this morning that we would receive what you have for us, uh, a word of encouragement, a word of strength, and of hope. In Christ's name, amen. So there's really so much, um, like, I really had trouble as I was kind of dissecting this passage, thinking I could preach like five sermons out of all that is written here. Um, and so it was really hard for me to kind of narrow it down. But one thing that stood out from the very beginning as I, as I dissected and prayed and read over this passage was this idea of strength uh, that comes from the Lord that produces or that provides endurance and patience in, in our lives. And so I want to kind of begin with just a little bit of context of um, what was going on uh, when this was being written. So I think that will help us kind of relate to it a little bit here. Um, but Colossians is a letter, just like uh, all the writings of Paul are letters. Um, and he wrote this letter to a church, interestingly enough, that he did not start. Some of the letters that he wrote and most of the letters that he wrote are, are written to churches that he was actually physically there, helped that church get started, and then he kind of bolts to go do it someplace else. But in the Colossian church was not a church that he started. It was actually, we believe, started by this guy named Epaphras. And he's mentioned very, very uh, few times in the scriptures. Um, uh, I think he's as mentioned just three times, um, twice in Colossians and once in the book of Philemon. Um, and we don't know a ton about him, but we know that he was most likely a convert of Paul, so that Paul led him to faith in Christ, and that he probably originated or came from this city um, it's called Colossae, where the Colossians come from, and that he probably came from that place. And it, it's believed that it's quite possible he was living in the city of Ephesus, you know, the letter of Ephesians. So he was living in Ephesus when Paul led him to faith there, and he actually took this newfound faith, went back home, and began to lead people to Christ. So Paul was never even there starting this church, and it's most likely this guy Epaphras was there. And in, according to chapter 1 of Colossians, Epaphras has been in communication with Paul at this point. And he's kind of giving an update on the spiritual health and well-being of this church. And it begins with a lot of great things that are going on in this particular church. Um, Paul commends this congregation or this, this local gathering of believers for their faithfulness. And that they, one of the things that really stands out is their love for others. So like he really begins... Paul commending them for like these great traits and there's evidence that God is working in their lives and so he's really commending them and, and, and encouraging them for doing the right thing, for remaining faithful with God. Uh, but just like most of his letters, there's always this, um, um, this, this um, thread of, of a correction that Paul is bringing because there's something that's going on in the church that needs to be corrected. And so despite all of these strengths in the, in the Colossian church, um, there's... Uh, uh, one thing that Paul points out, and we see an allusion to it in chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul alludes to some bad teaching that has infiltrated the church. And honestly, that's kind of a common thing, theme in a lot of the letters. So you've got to kind of remind or remove yourself, really, from where we're at today. Like today in the church culture, if you've been around it for any length of time, we kind of have an understanding of what church world is like. 
um, and expectations, and we have the Bible that we can reference. But remember, move yourself now, like 2,000 years ago, this is all brand new. This whole Jesus thing is like 30 years old, maybe 40 years old at the, at the most. Um, and um, there's no Bible to reference. There's nothing but somebody that has been impacted by one of the apostles that has found this faith in Christ, especially amongst the Gentiles, right? They have no context of what God is like. The Jewish people at least had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had this general understanding of what God was like. But these Gentiles had no clue. Their, their understanding is Roman pagan gods and, and their religion. So, like, they're being introduced to a whole new lifestyle. And so um, there's no Bible. There's nothing. And so the leaders would be in communication with these apostles. So the, like the local pastors would be in communication with like Paul and some of the other leaders like Peter and John, and they would be sharing with them more of these truths. And, and these letters, these communications became our scripture. So like this letter to the Colossian church is like now this Bible that we read. And so we, we, we gather the truths from it. So Paul's coming in now to correct some of this bad teaching that's taking place. And what's interesting is we don't have a lot of detail of what exactly was going on with this bad teaching um, in Colossae. But we do know a few things. And I think this is really important for kind of setting the groundwork for how Paul's writing um, this particular passage this morning. What we do know is that there was a lot of discussion going on uh, really amongst theologians today about what exactly was the, the, the issue, but we believe that it was most likely um, kind of a mixture of Jewish and pagan mysticism that had intermingled into their Christian faith or their faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a word that theologians and uh, sociologists use. It's called syncretism, which is where you take two sometimes conflicting but sometimes kind of parallel ideas and you begin to kind of reconcile them or merge them together. And so there's this idea uh, that the early church here in Colossae had kind of taken faith in Christ and mixed it with pagan and Jewish mysticism. So like, just like, I don't know if you've ever heard of Kabbalah. I think you probably have heard of it if you lived in LA, right? All right? So Kabbalah is modern day Jewish mysticism. So like the Orthodox rabbis reject it, but it, 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 it involves this spiritual uh, component, experiential component. Oftentimes some angels and demons are involved in their teaching in Kabbalah. And um, it's more about the experience and, and these um, spirits as well. So it isn't Kabbalah, but like that's kind of like the closest analogy we can have. There was also this kind of intermingling of at least Jewish holidays and festivals. But it was beyond that because there was also some outside pagan influence as well. So we don't really have a clear picture, but this idea that the Christian faith now had been intermingled with kind of the cultural influences of this particular community. So syncretism, right? The mixing of these particular beliefs and practice that began to pull the people in this particular church away from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This false teaching sought to add pagan and Jewish practices into their worship. And it was believed that if these practices weren't incorporated into worship, that their faith would actually be incomplete. So right now you're probably thinking, well, that's nice, interesting, and history, and all that kind of stuff. But really, how does that impact my life today, right? Like, I'm not mixing Kabbalah with my Jesus here, right? Like, so how, do, how does this really impact me? And, and really, what does this have to do with strengthening my life and my faith today? And the important conclusion, the important thing that I want us to draw from this particular passage, but in addition to this, like, contextual information is this, is that the Colossians have started to look to something beside Jesus for strength. 
The Colossians understood very clearly and very adamantly that they needed Jesus, right? So like at the beginning, Paul's commending them for their faithfulness, and there's evidence of God working in their lives through Christ, especially exhibited towards their love for others, right? One of the greatest measures that we can look inwardly about God's move in our life and our commitment to the Lord is how are we loving others, right? right? The, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So one of the ways that we measure our own faith and the way that we're growing is how well are we doing in our love expressed towards others? And so it was evident to Paul and Epaphras that this church was very good at loving other people. So there's evidence of God moving in their lives, yet they began to look beyond Jesus for strength. The Colossians understood they needed Jesus, but they didn't think that Jesus was enough. They felt that they needed to add these other influences, rituals, and practices into their faith in Christ. And there's evidence that the church actually began to incorporate worship of angels into their faith as well. There's some kind of spiritual stuff that Paul alludes to. We're not exactly 100% sure, but angels were some either seen as being worshiped or as additional mediators or go-betweens. So like we couldn't get to Christ unless we kind of went through these angels as well. We, we don't really have a lot of clear information, but there's some form of angelic worship or including the angels into this worship. And so Jesus was no longer at the center of their lives and their worship. They had to add these things, these other components, into their faith. And, and there's this truth that Paul is trying to make clear to the Colossians, as well as I believe that he wants us to grasp today, is that when we start adding things to Jesus, we actually lose Jesus himself. And when we lose Jesus, we lose the power that he brings to his people. And I, I want to say that again because it's so important for us to grasp this morning, is that when we start adding things to Jesus, we're actually subtracting or pulling Jesus away from our own lives. And we lose him. And when we lose Jesus, we lose the power that he brings to our lives. And you and I may not be guilty of including other religious ideas or philosophies into our faith. We're, we're pretty good about that in, in the Western church. At least I hope most of us are. But it isn't beyond reason to believe that there are other things practices, rituals, even superstitions that we have knowingly or unknowingly incorporated into our lives and into our faith. And just like the Colossians, we may not have abandoned Jesus, right? Jesus is still a part of our lives, a big part of our lives. You're here today, so at least at some level, he's a part of your life. But we've also included other practices, philosophies, and strategies, religions maybe even, into our faith. Now, here's some, some practical real-life examples. Like, we, again, we're, we're not doing any pagan or mysticism here. But, like, things that people include um, into their lives, especially, like, in the Western world, um, example would be, like, political systems. Whether it be liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, people um, put their trust in a political system or a movement to bring about justice in this world. Look, I'm all about justice. I'm all about us being active and doing things to fight injustices in this world. But as believers, we understand that a central focus of our faith isn't built around any political system on the spectrum. It's solely built upon Jesus Christ. Like this is an early struggle even in ancient days of the church. Like 
the profession of Jesus as Lord was not just a religious statement, it was a political statement in Jesus' day. Because for people in the Roman Empire, their normal saying was that Caesar is Lord, that he was master, that he was the one that we followed. You could still be and believe in anything you want, but you still had to profess this idea that Caesar was Lord. So Christians in the early church in the Roman Empire weren't saying that. They refused to say that, and they actually said something that completely in the opposite direction, they were saying that Jesus is the Lord, that he truly is the master. And so there is this political component to our faith, but we realize that political systems of this world are not where we put our trust and faith in, no matter where they fall and where they even align with our moral values and judgments, right? Like, so there's, there's moral justice issues to be found on both sides of the spectrum. And those are great things, right? Important things. But those Areas and those systems aren't where we put our trust. And there's this intermingling. It, it happens throughout the Western world, not just here in the U.S., but it's in particular in the U.S., where we put our trust in, in, in political systems and in leaders. And we, we interweave it so closely to our faith it almost becomes inseparable. I've heard people say that you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. And I've heard people say you can't be a Christian and be a Republican. I've heard it on all sides. And it's, like this, it's intermarrying a political system into our faith. And that is syncretism. You know, another thing that we see is, um, especially amongst our culture beyond just politics, is this idea of consumerism or materialism. That we begin to find peace or comfort in things and in possessions instead of Jesus Christ himself. Now, there's so much within the culture, there's so much within the, the, the community that we live in that says these things will provide the peace or the comfort that you're looking for or the hope that you're looking for. And it can also lead to things like distractions in our lives that we use distractions to soothe our soul instead of Christ, right? We could use things like food, entertainment, uh, drugs and alcohol, anything that we can use that will distract us from what God wants to do in our lives. And we use these things to soothe our soul instead of finding the solace, the strength, and the peace that comes with Christ. And the reality is, too, like, we, we are so avoidant of discomfort in our culture, it comes to our own detriment. Like, we think that anything that is difficult or challenging can't be from God, especially, like, for the faith world, right? Like, Difficult situations can't be from God because God wants to bless me. He has a plan for my life, and he has given me this great future, and yada, 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 yada. We buy into this Christian system instead of understanding that in the midst of the valley is where God does his greatest work, right? What is the Lord's Prayer, right? Anybody remember the Lord's Prayer? Did anybody go to Catholic school? I didn't, but did anybody go to Catholic school? I went to a Lutheran school. <laughs> it was like Catholic light, all right? All right? All right, so the Lord's Prayer is part of that, right? Does anybody remember? All right, let's, let's say it. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sounds all good and awesome, right? And it's true. It's right. But like we miss this part. Like when we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When we pray that, we don't always recognize what we're praying when we say those things. Like, for God's will to be done, not mine. And sometimes God's will is done in the midst of the valley, not on the mountaintop. We don't like discomfort. We don't like, because we think that life is hard enough that when it comes to my faith, everything's got to be 
great and glorious in the mountaintop experience. Yet we are closest to Jesus in our pain and in our suffering, right? Like we, we love to, to, to um, identify with the resurrection of Jesus because of what it means for us. But one thing we as Protestants don't typically do well is identify with, with Jesus in his death and in his suffering. This is where the Catholic Church actually does way better than us. They don't do very well on the resurrection part. That's like all about suffering and pain, and, and that, that is part of our faith. But that, and it's not all of our faith. But we, we want to live there in the resurrection. And you can't have the resurrection without death, right? To experience the resurrection in our lives, we've got to have death. And, and there are seasons in our lives where there is death and there is pain. But we want to avoid those things so we indulge ourselves in things like entertainment and food and anything that will distract us from that. And we miss out on the power and the strength and the patience that God wants to infuse in us that can only happen when we're in those seasons of the valley and we embrace them and not avoid them. And so what happens is we, we numb ourselves to being in the valley with whatever it is that we choose, and we can never grow in those areas where God wants to strengthen us. And we miss out on the power, the endurance, and the patience that he wants to bring into your and my life. There are a lot of ways that we could talk about where we mix um, different systems or different um, philosophies and practices into our faith, but we all have them if we're honest for us. And Paul is calling us to the solution. He's, as he calls the Colossians to the solution, he's calling us to the solution. And that solution is very simple. It's Jesus and Jesus only, right? He goes, Paul is calling them back to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he wants to remind these Colossians that Jesus is the only reason that they have been rescued from darkness. And darkness is an analogy that Paul uses for sin and death. And he's the only reason they've been rescued from, from darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only reason. Not good works, not any other philosophy, not any other religion, not any other practices. It's Jesus and Jesus only. And the Colossians, just like us, were lost prior to Christ. That's what he's, he's reminding them of. It's like, hey, before Jesus came in, you guys were lost in this world of darkness. You didn't even know it. But Christ has come to bring you now into this kingdom of Christ, this kingdom of God that is a kingdom of light. And it's Jesus that has done this. And he's bringing them back to this idea. He does this in Galatians 2 to the Galatian church uh, when they're dealing with their issues of, of bad theology as well. He's, he's reminding the church that it's Jesus and Jesus only that brought us out and he's going to be the only one that gets us through what we're going through right now. It's through the work of Jesus Christ that you and I have access to all strength, endurance, and patience from the Lord. And when we start to mix other things, philosophies, ideas, practices, rituals, superstitions, like people have all these different things, whether it's astrology, and I'm not saying any, but like there's all these other things that are new age thoughts. And like look, there's truth in other religions, but there's only one religious figure person that is the truth, and that is Jesus himself. So if there's any other truth out there, it's something that has flown through or come through God himself. Like, I'm a big proponent of this idea that all truth is God's truth. So if there is truth out there, it is something that is derived from God who is truth. But we don't have to go to all these other little things to find remnants of truth scattered throughout. We can go to the one that has authored a truth, and that is truth himself, and that is Jesus Christ. And that, that is what distinguishes and differentiates the Christian lifestyle is that we see that our rescue is not in a system or in a bunch of works of things that we do or don't do, 
and superstitions, but it's found solely in a person and what he did 2,000 years ago, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's through his work that we have access to the all strength, endurance, and patience. Now, I want to I don't have my, my, this written in my notes, but I want to share this because this was something that um, came across in my studies. And actually, Paul, if you and um, the worship team are ready, you can kind of come back here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind down here. But there's this idea um, that isn't completely communicated in this translation. No matter what translation you, you have of, 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 of this particular passage where it talks about, very, at the very beginning, verse 11, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. So um, the idea that Paul is trying to convey to the Colossians and he's trying to convey to us is it's not like God has just a lot of, of endurance, strength, and patience for you. It, it literally means that every bit of what God has is yours. Every bit. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work towards it. You don't have to like muster it up or even fake it. It's like God through Christ has just given this to you. And it's our responsibility just to receive it. That's it. All God's strength, endurance, and patience is yours. You're there. Not because you earned it or you've done all the right things or you, because you came here this morning and others didn't. Because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, did his work and has given us access to that. It's this inheritance that Paul talks about here. It's like everything that Jesus deserves by being the firstborn of God, the son of God, the one that is God himself, is now given or bestowed to his people because of what he's done. What we do is we're just trusting in what Christ has done is enough, that I don't have to do it anymore, that it's all him. And when I trust that Jesus is enough, even when it doesn't make sense, right, because other things can contemporarily soothe us or other things can temporarily encourage us. But when I understand it and I, I start to walk in this understanding that he is enough, that's when strength, endurance, and patience come. And yeah, we may have to walk through a valley, a difficult season in our life, or maybe even in our church life together. But it's in these dark seasons, in these valleys, we recognize our limits. We recognize we can't do it all. And where we need the Lord. See, that's the beautiful thing about hurt, pain, suffering, loss. Like Those aren't... In, in, intrinsically you would think great things or, or helpful things but it's in these limits in these dark moments in these values in valleys excuse me that we find Christ again so many times especially like if you're like me where you grew up in this Jesus thing you think you've got this Jesus thing figured out and you've been in it a long time but God wants to bring us to I would almost say um, new salvation moments it's like these moments where we re-recognize how much we need him if we get caught up in this ritual or we don't deal with the hurts and the pains and the loss and the suffering or we don't, we don't go through the difficult seasons of our lives, we can become very self-reliant because we use those things that we have access to, whether they're philosophies or habits or practices, just to kind of muddle through. And what God wants to do is not rescue you from those dark valleys all the time. He wants to bring you through them to build you and strengthen you in order to bring you out stronger. 
And, and the reason that God wants you to be filled with all strength, with all patience, and with all endurance is because God calls his people to do difficult things. He doesn't call us to do easy things. Moving across this country isn't an easy thing. Paying $660 a month in mortgage is a really nice and easy thing. Paying a, a rent that's almost $4,000 a month is not, not an easy thing. We know that, right? But God doesn't call us to do easy. Like if he's calling us, like God calling us here, we knew it had to be the Lord because it's easy to stay where things are comfortable and easy, but sometimes God wants to bring us into something new. And so we have to go through these difficult and hard seasons. Why? Because God's called us to do great things and great things don't happen easily. They're, like if you've ever, like for those of you that are married or have been married, marriage is a difficult thing. But if God's called you to marriage, it's because he's given you the patience, the endurance, and the strength to it, right? Because if you've been married more than five seconds, you realize it's not always easy. But also, I'm gonna back this up and say, I lived a very long time as a single man. I was 39 when I got married. Being a single person is not an easy thing. It takes all strength, endurance, and patience to live a life as a single person honoring the Lord. So whatever God has called you to, whether it be single or being married, it's a difficult thing. It's not an easy thing to live single or married and honor God in those relationships. But we can do it because God's called us to difficult things. And this is why we need access to the, all the strength, all the patience, and all the endurance. Because God hasn't called you to do easy things. If your life is easy right now, I would begin to question is like, where is God in my life right now? I'm not saying that he's abandoned you, but it's like, where have you placed him? Is he at the center? Is he at the core of not just your faith and what you do on Sunday mornings, but he's at the core of everything you do? Is he at the core of your life? Like we have this idea, and it's not always bad, but we have this idea that we rank Jesus first, family second, friends third, and career and fun, you know, down there. But like really, don't look at it as a list. Look at it like this circle. And that, that everything spurns out of that circle, which is Jesus at the center of your life. He's at the core of everything that you do. That's, that's what Christ has called us to. And so whatever the difficult things that God is calling you to do, I don't, I don't know, it can move beyond just our relational status. I'll say like some things that he's called all of us to do that are difficult. Uh, how about forgiveness? Forgiveness is difficult. And we need all the strength, patience, and endurance to do that. How about loving our neighbor as we love ourselves? That requires great strength. It's, it's difficult. It's not easy to love. How about all, if it's maybe all you have great neighbors? How about love your enemies? We all have enemies. Christ has called us to love our enemies. That's a difficult thing. Going through the valley, whatever that is in our lives, is a difficult thing. Christ calls us to submit to each other, right? Like there's this big thinking in parts of the church, like submit to those in authority. Actually, what the scriptures teach us is that as believers, we're called to submit all to each other. It's like this mutual submission that God's called us to. So like I am supposed to do whatever is best for you. Not me. I put myself second when it comes to life. And that's the, as believers, we think of like what's better for our community or what's better for others more than we think of ourselves. That's difficult stuff. It's, it's challenging. It's hard. And it can only be done in the strength of, of Christ. And when we focus on other things, it pulls us away from that power and that patience and endurance that he calls us to. And so this morning, if you just stand, I'm, I'm just going to close with this one question for you this morning for yourselves, right? I want you to begin to examine your lives this morning with the help of the Holy Spirit to say, what have I incorporated in my, in my life and in my faith that is uh, beyond Jesus? There, there may be something in your life this morning that 
You've added, and you may have unknowingly included it. It may be because of part of your culture uh, or just part of the LA culture, the Southern California culture. You've included it into your life. Recognize it today. Repent of that today and find the power, strength, and endurance that God has for you. Because he's called you and I and this community of believers to do great things. And it's going to come when we focus on Jesus and Jesus only. Amen. Lord, I pray a blessing over your people this morning. Lord, as we just sit in this word, as we sit in this uh, moment, I pray, Lord, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would begin to reveal in each one of our lives uh, those extras that we've added to you. And that in this moment, Lord God, we would recognize them, repent of them, and find your strength, patience, and endurance, all of it, for the difficult things you've called us to. In Christ's name.